you will turn to the Roman letter and the last chapter, the 16th chapter of Romans, I will read from verse 25 to the end. Romans 16, from verse 25 to the end. Now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which hath been kept in silence through times eternal, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, is made known unto all the nations unto obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, the Ephesian letter, chapter 3, We read from verse 2. If so be that ye have heard of the dispensation of that grace of God which was given me to you, Ward, how that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when ye read ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of of men as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of that grace of God which was given me according to the working of his power unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, was this grace given to preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages hath been hid in God who created all things to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access in confidence through our faith in him. Wherefore I ask that ye may not faint at my tribulations for you which are your glory. Shall we just bow once again in a short word of prayer? I always think when we deal with a matter like the one we're dealing with this evening, we really need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let each one then just ask the Lord to really meet us. Lord, when we come to this matter, which we believe to be so at the heart of everything in thy word, which thou hast in thy grace and sovereignty vouchsafed, Lord, to reveal to us. We pray, Lord, that we may not fall behind in seeking such illumination, 
but rather, Lord, we may be pioneers, as it were, seeking thy face day and night, that we might know this matter, not only, Lord, in word, but in experience. Now, Lord, wilt thou give us special grace for this time. The day has been a tough day, Lord. The weather has not helped. Lord, we thank thee that we are here tonight in thy presence, and thou art able to meet with us. Now release us from all the worries, cares, or exhaustion of the day, Lord. And grant, we pray, that we may know a ministry of thy spirit to our bodies, to our souls, and above all to our spirits. And this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now we have, at least I have sought, um, two weeks ago to begin uh, to introduce this matter of the mystery of Christ. This that we have read in the passage in Ephesians, in, for instance, verse 4, when the apostle said, whereby when you read you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. Or again, in the words of the apostle Paul in Romans 16 and verse 25, when he says, according to the revelation of the mystery which hath been kept in silence through times eternal. Now, this evening, <clears throat> there's a premium as usual on time, even more so tonight, so I really don't want to go over what we said on that Thursday um, study, that first Thursday study. I can only ask that um, if you were not with us at that time, you get the tape and listen very carefully to it, because it's foundational to everything else that we have to say. Um, we, we looked at the word mystery. We, I must just say this one thing about that, that <clears throat> the common usage today of the word mystery means a secret for which no answer can be found and for which no explanation is adequate. This is not the way the word is used in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. It is used not of a secret, some knowledge withheld, but rather of a secret which God wishes to communicate. So always in connection with this marvelous word mystery, um, which is used a number of times, especially by the Apostle Paul, we have the words manifest, understand, receive. Uh, knowledge of, uh, revelation of. Everything is positive. It's not that it's withheld from us. It's rather the emphasis is that it is communicated uh, to us. And um, the way we put it last week was it is a secret revealed as a privilege to the initiated. And that's how the word really is used in the New Testament. It's taken from those Greek mystery religions where there were initiated into the mysteries, um, the mystery rites and mystery sacraments and so on um, associated uh, with these things. Now the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, took this word and said, every born-again believer is a candidate for divine revelation. 
that these matters which God for generations and ages hath kept back, hath kept secret, he has now revealed. He has communicated them to us. Now, I would have thought that if there was no other reason for seeking the Lord, it ought to be just that one fact, that you have been born in an age and given, as it were, with your spiritual birthright, the privilege of understanding this mystery. Well, now, this evening, I want to ask uh, the question as to what the mystery is. That'll take us all of this evening. And we'll, as the Lord leads us and helps us, we'll look at this matter together. If you've got your Bible uh, with you, you will need it um, to really uh, search out things. What is the mystery of Christ? It is quite clear that it has something to do with the eternal purpose of God. For instance, we read in Ephesians 3 and verse 11, when he is speaking in verse uh, 9, to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hid in God, who created all things. 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here is one thing. This matter which has been withheld, hid in God um, for ages, withheld from many, many successive generations, has something to do with the eternal purpose of God which he purposed in the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is that it... Oh, there's another scripture if you're taking notes of this, and it's uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Making known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him, that is, in Jesus. So there again, it is something to do with this counsel of God which he purposed in the Lord Jesus. Here's the first clue. Here is the second. It is something to do with being the body of the Messiah, with being the body of the Lord Jesus. We have this in Ephesians 3 and um, verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus. The church. Now in chapter 3 and verse 6 we're told when he says to make, uh, when you can perceive, verse 4, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery which in other generations not made known unto the sons of men. Verse 6, to wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. So here is a second clue. This mystery of Christ is to do with being fellow members 
of the body. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. It is to do with fellowship, to do with sharing something, sharing him, being the body of God's Messiah, being the body of the Lord Jesus, being the church of God. Here is a third thing that it seems uh, this matter of mystery is, is linked with clearly. And that is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I speak in regard of Christ and the church. So here is the third thing. This mystery of Christ is to do with the bride of Christ, to do with the wife of the Lamb. Somehow it is associated with those who are called to be his bride, his wife. That's the next thing. And then, lastly, in direct association anyway, it has to do with ultimate glory. Ultimate glory. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. Even the mystery which had been hid for ages and generations, but now has it been manifested to his saints, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12. Remember again about that mystery which occurred just a, a few verses back. Verse 9, making no answer to the mystery of his will. Verse 12, to the end that we should be unto the praise of his glory. Now these are phrases which uh, Christians tend to know, the praise of his glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The body of Christ. The church of God. The bride of Christ. The wife of the Lamb. Eternal purpose. I don't say that we understand them, but if you are um, a little acquainted with the Bible and you've been a believer for at least two or three years, generally speaking, these are phrases which at least you know are biblical. They are Christian phrases. They are, they are, they are phrases to do with the gospel of God, with the whole counsel of God. But who understands them? It's one thing to know phrases. It's another thing to understand it. I mean, frankly, I understand, at least I know the word, atom. But you asked me to explain an atom, and I think I would have some problem. You see, we can all know phrases, words, terms. But when it comes to actually explaining what it is, we have a vague, intuitive uh, idea of what it means. 
but to explain it, to give a reason for the hope that is within us, to be able to communicate it to somebody else. We couldn't do it. And yet this mystery, which was withheld from the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings and all those who've gone before, has been granted as a privilege to every single born-again child of God in this dispensation. That ought to make us hungry for the Lord. It ought to make us really reach out to the Lord. Now, let's just survey that again. This mystery of Christ, well, it has something to do with the eternal purpose of God, something to do with being members of the body of the Messiah, the church of God, something to do with being the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, something to do with ultimate glory. The final manifestation of the glory of God in the earth. Now then, what is the mystery of Christ? Well, now, let's have a little bit, because now, now we really need the Lord's help. God has had a plan, a purpose, from the beginning, from before times eternal, whatever that means, right in the distant, distant eternity, pre-time eternity. God had in his heart a plan, a purpose. And this purpose was centered in his son. Because it says, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the Colossian letter puts it even more simply if you want to look at it. Colossians chapter 1 and from verse uh, 16 to 17. Now let's listen very carefully to this. Well, we'll read from verse 15. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is the pattern of all creation. You understand? The firstborn of all creation. Now it goes on. For in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist or hold together. Now, I, I, I defy anybody to ever be able to fathom that. What it's saying, in my simple language, not nearly obviously as full as this, in my simple language is this, that everything that has been created by God, visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth, was created through the Lord Jesus. And it was created not only through the Lord Jesus, but for the Lord Jesus. And furthermore, he was before all these things. In other words, he was the pattern for it all. He was the, the basis for it all. He was the blueprint, if you like, for it all. He was before all things, and in him, 
the whole thing holds together. Well, now you might well ask, whatever's happened? Whatever has happened? Here we are in a country that is anything but an illustration of that. We can hardly say all this chaos just on our little national level is through him and for him. That in him it all holds together, yet in some marvelous way, in spite of the fall, in spite of sin, in spite of the powers of darkness, everything that's been created, even though much has been usurped by the powers of darkness, has still been created through him and for him. And it is the very grace of God that holds the whole together in sin now. God is waiting. Because once God has got the heart of the matter put right, then in the end he will work out to the circumference. So that in the end when he's got the heart of the matter right, he will work out from that to the far-flung circumference until the whole is renewed and there is a new creation. As he said in the book of Revelation, Behold, I make all things new. But first things first. Isn't it wonderful? You know, some people often, some people some, sometimes say to me, why didn't God finish with it all? Why didn't he just wash his hands of it all? Why didn't he start again? Well, he could have done. There's no reason why God shouldn't, when, when Adam and Eve fail to write, blow them up, finish with them. And we'll start all over again with a new world, no sin, and we'll, start, and we'll go on till we get a perfect couple. <laughs> you know, a couple that really do think each time they, anything goes wrong, we'll blow them up. But I'm not sure that it reveals the heart of God or the love of God or the patience of God or the faithfulness of God, the kind of person God is. You know, his enduring patience, his steadfast patience and love over a world that has gone hopelessly askew is really wonderful. When you think that he is going to, in the end, do something that's going to be the marvel of all the ages to come. I don't know if far out in space, I, I can't imagine, I know it's speculation, but I, I, I can't help but imagine that it must be so, that far, far out in space, there must be other inhabited universes. And I sometimes think to myself that perhaps they never fell. They actually did, in fact, partake of the tree of life. But if that is so, and there is an if, but if that is so, then there is no single universe amongst all those innumerable universes that will be more precious or more marveled at that the, than the one universe that went astray. <coughs> and God brought back. Now, let's get back to this again. God had a plan, a purpose. From the beginning, centered in his son. Now, see if we've got another scripture that may help. Do you see all these scriptures are what we call deep scriptures? You know, see people sort of start, you start reading these, they go, oh, oh. You know, we really are. They're not, if you had a few of them, of the saints saved on the day of Pentecost with you, quite unlettered people, they would probably tell you that they understood these things from the beginning. Perfectly simple. 
But we tend to feel that once you know, if you know something about forgiveness and 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 being saved and cleansing, that's the simple gospel. And anything that goes beyond that, um, you begin to get out of your depth. And psychologically, we flounder the moment we start to hear anything like. But it's not so. Listen now. Listen to Hebrews chapter one and verse two. I will have to start with the phrase of the first verse. God hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Whom he appointed heir of all things. So the Son is the heir of all things. He is the genuine heir. Satan has said that he will inherit. He will take. He will take the place of the Son of God. He will be like the Most High. But the Lord Jesus is the true heir of all things. Now that's the first thing about this matter of the mystery. It has something to do with a purpose which was in God's heart right back in pre-time eternity through which, by which, he created the universe and everything that's in it. He created mankind in his image. It is centered in his son. Now here's the second thing. This little phrase, if you want something simple to get hold of in this that we're saying tonight, this little phrase is the key to the mystery of Christ. It comes again and again and again in the New Testament. And it is the simplest way that one can communicate the mystery of Christ. In Christ. It explains everything. In Christ. You see, the whole is explained. It's the key to the whole matter to this mystery. Because God had a purpose in Christ. And then he starts through Christ to save a people. And he brings them into Christ. And then he begins to form them in Christ. And then from that people he begins to go out to bring a whole creation back into Christ. Let's have a further look at this. Now this word again, this eternal purpose, Ephesians 3, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you will notice in the New American Standard Bible, it says, according to the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Carried out in Christ Jesus. I like that. The Revised Standard Version puts it also very lucidly. It says, according to the eternal purpose which he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is not only purposed, it's carried out. It was not only that God had a purpose centered in his Son, he has carried out that purpose in his Son. Now we're coming home, I hope. <laughs> you see, and if we begin to think, it's been carried out in his son. Well, what about the Gospels? We have four Gospels. Somewhere there we must have what he carried out in his son. 
If it's been realized in his son, somewhere in these four Gospels, we should be able to discover what it is that he has realized in his son. So we have no excuse. And once we get hold of the matter, then we shall be able to go back to the Old Testament prophets and find that they all spoke about this matter. And then we will go on into the letters of Paul and find we have a tremendous exposition of this whole matter. It becomes so exciting. People say they find the Bible boring. Well, of course you'll find it boring, you know. I mean, if you, you, you sort of, you know, keep to a kind of mundane diet. Uh, if, you, if you don't really start to ask God for a illumination and start to move out of your little um, water that you're in, then you want to launch out. Get out of what you know, you, you've known up to now and start saying, Lord, there's more. There's more. I want to know what it is. I want to launch out into this. I want to be a Christian with the whole counsel of God, not just a simple gospel. Where is this word simple gospel? It never comes anywhere in the whole Bible. People say that, you know, I preach the simple gospel. Well, they don't preach the gospel the Apostle Paul preached. All the apostles preached. They preached the whole gospel. The whole counsel of God. The Apostle Paul was very, very um, fiery on this point. He says, you know, I have given you the whole counsel of God. You've been witnesses to it. I didn't withhold anything from you. I gave you the whole thing. You may not have understood it. I don't think for a single moment that that church in Ephesus could have ever understood the Ephesian letter since all of us have had such a bad time with it. I mean, they must have also sort of thought, what is he talking about? We'll never understand these things unless we have a seeking heart. But the whole point of a time like this, a series like this, is to inflame your appetite. It is to sort of give you a, I know I shouldn't say this, a sherry to get your appetite going. <laughs> a spiritual sherry. I mean, to give you some kind of, something that sort of gets all the taste buds excited. So that from now on you go, actually, I can't be bothered with all that less. I've got something more. There's something more in this book. There's something more in, the, in, the, in God for me. I must have it. I must know it. We don't want youngsters that are just just sort of uh, all of the whole realm is pop pop style gospel music. I I personally haven't anything against pop style gospel, and I know Dennis and somebody else. Whoa, whoa, they got a whole you tear your limb from them. But I personally haven't got too much against pop style gospel music. If you want to play that kind of thing, go on. I mean, but fancy. You think you've been saved just to listen endlessly to pop style sort of thing? You're always kind of on and on, day after day, night, and that, that's the gospel? I'm not saying that you want to listen <laughs> to Handel's Messiah day and night, or, or some Bach cantata, or, or Mendelssohn's Elijah. I, I'm not asking you to be all classical. But what I am asking is this. Do you see, the, this gospel has got something. And the apostle speaks of this gospel as being a, a, a revelation according to the mystery which God has revealed to us. It's to be, a, this gospel is a, according to the mystery which he has revealed to us. I don't think... Most Christians' appreciation of the gospel is according to the mystery which has been revealed. I think it's much, much less than that. 
So, you see, this is rather wonderful when we say, now, let's get back to the point. So, this eternal purpose, this purpose that's been in God's heart from pre from pre-time eternity has been carried out in the Lord Jesus, has been realized in the Lord Jesus. Well, now, what on earth does this mean? Simply this. God had, has found his home in Christ. It's as simple as that. God has found his home on earth in Christ. Now, you think for a moment about this matter. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says that the Spirit of God hovered, brooded upon the face of the deep and everything was without form. Everything was void. And then God began. Let there be light, he said. And there was light. And then he said something else about the firmament. Uh, heaven being divided from the earth, and, and, and then day and night, and so on and so on. But the beginning was this, the Spirit of God brooded on the face. It was as if the Holy Spirit was brooding over the whole earth, looking, may I put, as a dove for a home. Do you remember the, the, the beautiful story, the history of Noah? Do you remember at the end of the flood when <clears throat> he let out a raven? It didn't come back. Ravens are very shrewd birds. They're also unclean birds. Of course, it didn't come back. Found some floating dead carrion and sat on it and had a wonderful meal. Then Noah woke up and thought, oh, I was silly to let that bird out. I let out a dove. Now a dove will not touch anything dead. And the dove flew around trying to find a place to rest, but found none, and came back with a twig in its mouth. You remember? Now, you know, to me this is like a picture of the Holy Spirit. You see, when, when, he, was, when he was looking over that whole face of the deep, formless, Void. It was as if the Holy Spirit was saying, where is the home? Where is God's home? Where is his resting place? Where is that in which he can come home to be himself? Now, I know this is speaking of God in very sort of Sunday school terms, but we have to. We cannot understand it any other way. And out of that formless void, God created something. But there was no rest for the Holy Spirit. God said, it is good. It is all good. But there was no rest for God. Because God doesn't dwell in natural creation. He doesn't dwell in houses of bricks and mortar or stone. He doesn't dwell in organizations or systems or philosophies. God dwells in human beings. That's his plan. That's his purpose, to come home into human beings, to find his home in the men and women that he created. But he found none. 
Now, all the way through the record of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never came home. Only twice do you find that the glory of God filled something and the smoke of his presence, even the priests couldn't go into it. And do you remember where it was? In Exodus 40 and the last verses to do with the erection of the tabernacle. And you remember the moment the tabernacle was erected according to the plan which God gave of heavenly things, then that moment the whole was filled with the presence of his glory. And you remember the second time? It is in 2 Chronicles and chapter 7 and the first verses, and it was the temple. When the temple was dedicated after it was built, you will remember the presence of his glory, of God's glory, came into the hole and filled it so that the priest could not stand to minister. And all the people bowed with their head to the ground and worshipped. Now, that tabernacle and that temple was only a figure or a type, a symbol, a Sunday school picture, if you like, of the real thing. And even the little picture, God couldn't hold himself back, if you see what I mean. He, God knew very well he doesn't dwell in tabernacles made by men. He doesn't dwell in temples or houses that men have made, either in the old or the new covenant. But that was a picture. It was in the time when God was doing everything in picture form, in type form, in, in sort of um, the ABC. <laughs> you understand? And so, even when the tabernacle, it was as if God said, Oh, I've waited, I've waited, I've waited, I've waited from pre-time eternity for this. This is only the figure. But I'll fill the whole thing with my glory. And not one of those priests will even be able to come near. I want to show them this is the thing on my heart. And exactly the same happened with the temple. But you will never find God Resting at home. Anywhere else. Until. Jesus. Of course you know what happened when Jesus was born at Bethlehem. I don't have to tell you that. But you must surely know what happened. When he went down to be baptized in the river Jordan. You will find it in the gospel of Mark. And chapter 1. And verse 9 to 11. Mark chapter 1 verse 9 to 11 and this is what it says and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan and straightway coming up out of the water he saw the heavens rent asunder and the spirit as a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Now John says in his gospel, John chapter 1, that John the Baptist said that he upon whom the Holy Spirit comes and remains is he that uh, God had spoken to him of. Do you remember? What does it mean? It means that the Spirit of God, after all those thousands of years of human history, had come home for the first time. The Holy Spirit found a man as a man, apart from his Godhead, found a man, Jesus, who was 
absolutely without sin and absolutely holy and absolutely according to the mind of God. And in that moment, he came to rest. And the heavens opened. The heavens could never be open on the other kind of man from Adam to Jesus. Because we were all fallen, all sinful, all fallen short of the glory of God. But upon Jesus, the heavens opened and God said, Thou art my well-beloved Son in thee. I am well pleased. Now, even more remarkable is the little thing that John says in John chapter 1 and verse um, 49. I will read it. You will all know the story, those of you who know your Bibles. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee underneath the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye shall see the heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, what do you think this means? I don't know how well you know your Bible. You see, when Jesus said earlier, here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He used the word Jacob. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. And later on, when he said, did you believe that I am the son of God, the king of Israel, because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than these. What shall you see? You shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He was referring to the dream of Jacob. In Genesis, I think, chapter 28. You remember? And do you remember that dream that, that God gave Jacob? And he saw a ladder stretching from the earth into heaven. And he saw angels descending and ascending. A little different. And then he said, this is none other than what? Than the house of God. Beit El, the house of God. What does it mean? It means this, that Jesus is God's home. For the first time, God has got his home on earth. He's found the person in whom he can come absolutely home. Not a lodging place, not a hotel, not an inn, but home. And that's why John was told, John the Baptist was told, the one upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descending and abiding, he is the Messiah. God had come home. He hadn't come like he did upon Saul just to prophesy for a little while, upon some of the others to do great and skillful work, or upon Samson that he might uh, exercise tremendous supernatural strength, or upon some of the others that they might fulfill some point in God's economy. He came upon Jesus that he might dwell there forever. <coughs> and this is exactly 
exactly what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 2 and verse um, 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou raise it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he spake this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now I don't think that we should just think of it simply as a reference to the personal body of the Lord Jesus just being uh, crucified, buried, and raised. Jesus said, this body, this being of mine, is the temple of God. It is the house of God. Destroy it. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now listen, you're very near to an understanding of the mystery of Christ. If you followed me even very, very weakly up to this point, if you can take the next step, you're there. In three days, I will raise it up. Through his finished work on the cross, his death, his burial and resurrection, all who are saved, are in him. Are you saved? You say, yes. How were you saved? You say, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. You are you saved? You say, yes. How were you saved? You say, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Yes. Through his death, burial, and resurrection. Where are you now? Ah, now you begin to quaver a bit. Well, uh, um, well, I'm following the Lord. Yes, 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 I know that. Um, well, I'm seeking to be obedient. Yes, yes, yes. Where are you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? <laughs> are you in the first man or are you in the second man? Are you in the old man or are you in the new man? Are you in the old creation or are you in the new creation? Now you begin to get it. If you've been saved, you are in him. And now we begin to see something tremendous. We begin to see, now, thank God, if we are in him, we are in the home of God. We've come into the home of God. We're part of the home of God. Well, it should make you dance with joy. On a miserable night like this, strike ridden, and I don't know what else, a world falling to pieces, and here this is what God has done for us. He has brought us to the place where we are in his Son, and if we are in his Son, then we are in the house of God. We're in the home of God. Now, just wait. Let's get this a little more. What did the Lord Jesus say in almost one of the very last messages he gave? It's recorded in John. It was given after the Passover feast. 
somewhere between that upper room and Gethsemane. Do you remember? I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Then he went on and said, Abide in me, and I in you. That word abide is beautiful. He didn't say, fight to get in me, and I'll fight to get in you. Strive to get into me, and I'll strive to get into you. He didn't even say more graciously, strive to get into me, and I will graciously <coughs> abide in you. He said, abide in me. And I in you. Abide is really remain. If you, you can't remain if you're not already there. <laughs> you understand? <coughs> How can you stay if you're not already there in the place? If I say, remain in the library, you must already be in the library. If I say to you, go to the library and remain there, that's different. But if I say, abide in the library, it means you're already in the library. You understand? So here we have something simply wonderful. The Lord Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Somehow or other, you're in me. You're part of me. You've become, you've come home to me. You and I, we share one life. Now abide in me, and I in you. You've got the same thing in this matter of the temple. You know the word so well, but perhaps after what I've said this evening, it may come home to you with new force. In Ephesians, and chapter 2, and verse 20, to 22. Now you know these very well. Don't let it run off you like water off a duck's back. Listen. Being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Did you notice in whom, in whom, in whom? In the Lord Jesus. The whole building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. It, you couldn't get it more clear, could you? It didn't say a holy temple of the Lord. It's a holy temple in the Lord. You've got it twice. In whom? In the Lord. In whom you are built it together. As a habitation of God in the Spirit. Now, you see, I say that this is simply tremendous. This is the mystery of Christ. Let me take it one a little bit further. Um, we won't be able to go very much further, but we'll just try at least to cover this one point tonight. Because we have been saved through the finished work of the Lord Jesus, through his death, burial, resurrection, when he was raised as the temple of God, he has become the chief cornerstone, and we as living stones are built together upon that foundation and grow into a holy temple in the Lord. What a marvelous privilege is yours and mine. To share with the Lord Jesus like this. Ah, oh, there's something more. We've become part of him. Now this is not, I do not mean to devalue his essential deity. 
But we have become partakers of the divine nature. The Apostle Peter says so in 2 Peter, chapter uh, 1 and verse 4, I think it is. We have become partakers of the divine nature. In the most wonderful way as the Russian liturgy so beautifully puts it, God became man in order that man might become part of God. We cannot take it too far, but it's true. We become partakers of the divine nature. We become part of him. We become members of his body. So essential is this union, so organic, so lively, so vital, that he's just like fingers and hands and, and feet and toes and, and legs and, and muscles and all the different parts of a human body. members on a membership roll, I can't think of anything more deadly. All our little names in serried ranks on some dusty old piece of paper in some archive of some, in some vestry. No! We are living members. We are limbs of Christ. Parts of him. Now we mustn't take it too far, but isn't it wonderful? I find it simply marvellous. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, you can, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery. He was just over, overboard about it. He said, oh, I've been called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. To that lot. Let them hear all about it. Bring them into it. Why? Because this mystery is this. That what God began in the Jewish people has to go to the ends of the earth. And from every kindred and tongue and people and nation will come those who will become part of what God began in the Jewish people and will end with the Jewish people. That's why. What is this mystery? Listen to it. Says, you shall perceive my understanding of this mystery of Christ, he says. What is it? It is this. That you are fellow heirs. Fellow members of the body. <coughs> Fellow members with whom? With the saved Jews. Going right back to Abraham. Didn't the Lord Jesus say? Without any, he said, there shall come a day. When they shall come from the west and from the south and from the north and from the east. And they shall sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Then people immediately say to me, I shall say something more about this in the next Thursday time we have. People will say to me, yes, but just wait. The Lord himself said, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Quite right. In privilege. Get that clear. It doesn't mean for one single moment that John the Baptist is of less spiritual character than most of us in this room. He is a giant spiritually. This disgraceful teaching that's gone around. Abraham, Isaac, I think, are all petty little characters because they were under the old covenant. I never heard such nonsense. Because when you come to the city, you find there are 12 foundations and 12 gates. And there are the twelve apostles, 
and the twelve tribes of patriarchs. No, 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 no. It means, now here is your responsibility. John the Baptist didn't have one-tenth of the privileges of the order. Not one-tenth! I would go further. Not even one percent of the privileges are yours. You have the gospel law written on your heart. You have the Holy Spirit given to you. You have all the mysteries unveiled to you. John the Baptist had none of them, nor did any of the others. Yet they overcame. It says in Hebrews 11, and have become inheritors of the promise. Dear friends, this should shake us up. Do you think that God is going to be pleased that he has scattered these privileges, poured them out upon us, and we've, we've squandered them? No, not at all. Now, come back to this matter. You see, it is, it is really very wonderful. We've become part of the Lord Jesus. This is our privilege. This is the mystery of Christ, hid from other ages and generations, now made known to us. That we are members of the Messiah. Oh, those others longed for the Messiah. They looked for the Messiah. They saw him as some divine figure that would come to the people of God and would bring righteousness and salvation and deliverance and set up the kingdom of God and the throne of God. But it was never revealed to them that those whom the Messiah would save would become an integral part of himself. That was his. But not to you. You may be the most unworthy child in the kingdom of God, but to you this mystery has been communicated. Well, now, you see, as usual, the clock is beating us, but you see, this is what it means when it says that we are to be his bride. We are to be his wife. I've read that Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but, says the apostle, I speak of Christ and the church. And then you read the whole of this passage about husbands and wives, we suddenly find that the apostle Paul has really got Christ and the church behind the whole thing. He says, this mystery being so great. Now, I know it is not, no longer fashionable in these days of women's lib to speak of Genesis 2 and the way that the woman was created. But women's lib or no women's lib, we can't get over the word of God. And the word of God is this, that God brought all the animals from the creation before Adam. And he didn't name them. He stood aside and let Adam name them. I find that very interesting. Why didn't God create? Why didn't God say, now this coming up is an elephant? <laughs> elephant, Adam. This now coming up is a giraffe. Giraffe, Adam. And Adam would say, giraffe. But what was the Lord doing? The Lord never named them. It was as if he was saying, Adam, I have created you without sin, but you are not complete. And I want to bring this incompleteness out of you. 
I want to see if there's any one of these animals that you feel you could settle down with. <laughs> now, that may seem very disgusting to you, but it, uh, I mean, that's really, I mean, even the ape when it went by. I mean, after all that, I might say, oh, well. I mean, it's the nearest to me, and some people tell us that it's supposed to be almost, you know. <laughs> even the orangutan, as it went by. But Adam said, no, no, Lord. We'll call that an orangutan. And said, goodbye. <laughs> and then it says, and here it is in Hebrew, there was no help meet for him. But the Hebrew is very beautiful. There was nothing that answered him. Nothing that answered. That's the key to it. There was not one of those animals. He could keep them. He could keep them as pets. He could admire them. He could marvel at them. He could see the glory of God's creation in them. But they didn't answer to him. <coughs> then God put him to sleep and opened his side and took out flesh and bone and created woman and closed his side. And then man awakened. And God said, Now what about this, Adam? And Adam said, Oh, this is me. His name was Ish in Hebrew, but he called her Isha. Me again? <laughs> it's me again? Not me, and yet me. The opposite end of me. The other side of me. The other half of me. Do you understand? You getting it? That was the first Adam. What did God do with the last Adam? God put him to sleep on the cross. And in that moment in John chapter 19, it says, he cried with a loud voice. Uh, he cried, he said, it is finished. And in that moment, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The whole thing was finished. Our salvation the work of it was completed. There was nothing to be added. Not one jot, not one, no one tittle was to be added to it. God had done it. He had accomplished it. It was finished. And then, says John, a soldier went up to him and pierced his side. And forthwith there came out blood and water. And then he says, he that bore witness, his witness is true. Why does he make so much about the blood? Oh, you see, oh, but you see, that was salvation. No, no, friends, it wasn't salvation. The salvation had been completed in the finished work. What then was that opening of his side? We get it in 1 John chapter 5. And the, listen, I don't suppose anyone, well, maybe some of you have. I'd be very interested if you have. But I wonder whether anyone's ever connected these words with this matter. They're very mysterious words. But listen. From verse 4. Whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that hath overcome the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with water and with blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three who bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. 
and the three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this, that he hath borne witness concerning his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in him. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he hath not believed in the witness that God hath borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. Now, here is the wonderful thing. When God put Jesus to sleep, he opened his side, and by blood and water, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he created a woman. So that every single child of God, born of the Spirit, comes by water and by blood. Life. That's the meaning of the church. The church isn't a theology, it's not a theory, it's not an ideal, it's not an organization, it's not a social club, it's not some friendship society. What is the church? Where lonely people can meet each other. No, no, no. Those things may all be entailed in it, included in it, but that's not the church. The church is Jesus. The church is the nature and life of Jesus, created by the Holy Spirit in others. So that suddenly we belong to him. We are created out of him. We have become part of the new creation, part of the new man. He is the head, we are the body. He is the husband, we are the wife. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Do you begin to get it? I'll put it very simply like this. We've been incorporated. Literally. Incorporated. I don't mean in business way. I mean this way. We've been made the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, we know that from Colossians 1.18, for it says, and he is the head of the body, which is the church. Or I think of other wonderful scriptures, like in Romans 12, 5, although there will be many members, yet are we one body in Christ. This is marvelous when we begin to see it. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 says, though there be many members, yet is there one Christ. We're all in him. Now, this union with Christ is so tremendous, it is a matter of glory. I have to just say, give me one minute more for just this matter, because otherwise it's a shame to, to cut it off, amputate it. That bride is also the city of God. You all know that. No one ever speaks of his wife as his city. It would seem a very strange thing if you, you sort of said, come on, city. We'll go home now. But the Bible says that this bride is the city. And we have it in Revelation 21, where again and again we're told the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem, the holy city. Now, what we find is this, if you look very carefully. I'll give you the scriptures, but I won't be able to have the time to read them myself. But here are the scriptures. Revelation 21, verse 10 and 11. That city coming down out of it, having the glory of God. Or I think of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, 
the God of all grace who hath called you unto his eternal glory. Where? In Christ Jesus. Called unto his eternal glory. In Christ Jesus. You've been called to share the glory of God in the Lord Jesus. What a calling. Or I think of another wonderful scripture that we've quoted once or twice this evening. The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, don't you think when you begin to really get this, it becomes very exciting. <coughs> For instance, I think of these wonderful words in Romans chapter 9 and verse 23, and that God might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Isn't this wonderful? I can understand when I, I thank God that he gave me some revelation of this mystery. The little that I see of it, it just thrills me, has kept me going all through these years. I find it so exciting. No wonder the apostles went overboard on this thing. As if they couldn't contain themselves. This thing is so, so exciting, so tremendous. Now, if it is a matter of sharing the glory of the Lord Jesus, it is a matter of coming to the throne of God. What is a city? A bride is, speaks of something intimate, secret, personal, direct, union, communal. What is a city? It is the center of administration, a place of public intercourse. It is a place where matters get settled and done, policies are worked out and uh, fulfilled. So you have two things. We are called to share the glory of the Lord Jesus not only as his wife, as his bride, in the most intimate, direct, personal way, but we are called to come to the throne with him and share in his reign. Not just marvel at his reign, but be involved in his government. Now, if that is so, I begin to understand a whole lot of other things. I understand what he says in Romans 8, and verse 17, and if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Or I think of those words of the Lord Jesus, to him that overcometh, in Revelation 3, verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit down with me in my throne. <laughs> even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. <clears throat> well, dear ones, you see, a matter like this can't just take a few moments, can it? It's for this, listen carefully, because there are some heresies on this, and I want to be very careful. It is for this revealing of the sons of God that the whole natural creation longingly awaits. Did you hear that? It is for this revealing of the sons of God. Get it right. Not the children of God. 
sons of God. Oh, but you say you can't make a distinction between children and sons. No, in one way, but yes, in another. We are all sons of God through faith. But a babe cannot sit on a throne and reign. Practically. Right? A babe, a child, cannot take over a family business or the family estates, can it? You know, a father may say, so-and-so is my child. But when the child has grown up to full discretion and maturity, I've never heard a father say, so-and-so is my child. <laughs> he says, so-and-so is my son. Now, when that son was a baby, he was still a son, wasn't he? You get it? When he was a baby, he was still a son. So, of course, it's quite right. He was a son all the way through. <laughs> But sometimes the Spirit of God uses this word son to speak of some maturity, some growth, a reaching of a certain point of growth, what the Scripture calls perfection. Very unfortunately misunderstood in some quarters. I like the word maturity much better. But you see, if you look at Romans 8, Keeping again in Romans 8, we've just read that verse 17, joint heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, then listen to this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us, Lord, for the earnest expectation of the creation waited for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, your New American Standard Bible, I think, puts it even more clearly, if I may just read it uh, to you. This is how it puts it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the whole. That isn't. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The revealing of the sons. What does this mean? Very simply, there is a sense in which that long-awaited day cannot come unless the Lord has the required number for his eternal government. Did you hear? Do you think God is so stupid, so senseless, that he who has created a brain and given us intelligence would do something quite opposite? Now, I can't always say that it is true of us here in this place, but it ought to be so, that we're always looking ahead. We are seeing, within a year or two, this and this is going to happen, and unless we are prepared for it, we're going to be undone. 
God gave us brains. God gave us intelligence. God gave us a kind of ability to at least weigh up the pros and the cons of a situation, to understand it a bit. Do you mean to tell me that God is going to willy-nilly bring the day in when he hasn't got those people who can form an administration in the new heaven and the new earth? Wouldn't that be just to start the whole cycle all over again? No. That's why it says the natural creation waits the revealing of the sons of God. These aren't just children. These are children that have grown up. This is the mystery of Christ. And you see, when we come back again, if the Lord will, we shall go on and we shall talk about this now, begin to talk about it more, in the whole matter of the practical side. God doesn't give light so that we may compromise, that we might contradict it in practice. If God reveals a matter like this, this mystery to us, it's that you and I might have the obedience of faith. Did you hear those words in, in, in Romans? Chapter 16, with which we began, we'll end with them. Listen again, and may God bring you to this place. Now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept in silence through times eternal, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, is made known unto us. For what? For the obedience of faith. That's why God sometimes doesn't communicate this mystery to some people. There's no obedience of faith. God never casts pearls before swine lest they turn and trample it underfoot. Lest they take the thing and sort of say, <laughs> pressure of circumstances, we'll do this and this. And contradict the light God has given. That's why there is such a scarcity and a dearth of vision in our days. Obedience. We live in days of disobedience. Days of anarchy, days of disorder, days of strife, days of rebellion. Makes no difference. This mystery is communicated for the obedience of faith. May God give to you that obedience of faith. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Then these things so tremendous will become simplicity itself to you. They will become your flesh and blood. They will come to mean to you more than life itself. It will be the very meaning of your existence, the core, the very destiny that God has predetermined for you. May the Lord help you in this matter. Shall we pray?
Now, Lord, we do pray that thou wilt not allow this evening to be wasted, not in any single part. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt take these poor words of mine and thou wilt make them to become a vehicle of communication for divine illumination, enlightenment to all of us. Lord, grant us that obedience of faith. Give us that humility of spirit and heart that bows before thee, Lord, that begins to seek thee, that recognizes its lack of wisdom and asks thee for that wisdom which is from above, which thou dost give liberally and over which thou dost not upbraid. Lord, we pray that since it has been our privilege to have this mystery revealed to us, we may become the true recipients of all this light. His light may shine into us corporately, shine into each of our lives, shine into our homes, transforming us, Lord, so that we shall see our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.